In Daniel chapter 6 and verse 20, Darius asked Daniel a question, Is your God able to deliver you? Is the God whom you serve able to deliver you? Now the obvious answer to that question is yes, but what do you need to have happen if you're going to really demonstrate that to somebody, that your God is able to deliver you? Well, first of all, you need to be a faithful believer who constantly serves God, no matter what's going on. That's what Daniel did. It didn't matter to him if it were a high time or low time. He faithfully served the Lord. Secondly, you need a lion's den situation. You need to be put in a situation where you cannot possibly, on your own, figure your way out. And thirdly, you need a miraculous intervention of God in which he delivers you so that people who are around you stand in awe of what they see God doing. That's what's needed if we're going to answer the question, our God is able to deliver us. If you are a faithful believer who stands for the word of God in any environment, in any dispensation, whether it be your home, your family, your friends, your church, your business, or your play, you may be certain that sooner or later you will come up against forces of evil who are against you and intend to silence you. You may discover that you are bypassed for a promotion. You may discover that you are treated with contempt. You may even discover there will be plots, subplots behind the scenes that want to get rid of you. When those kinds of things happen, the admonition from the book of Daniel is you stay faithful to God. You realize that he's still sovereign. You realize that he's still on the throne. And if you stay faithful to God in his time, in his way, he will honor you. One Christian psychiatrist has said that the main reason people see psychiatrists is because they lose their purpose in life. Pressures hit, they don't know how to cope. Daniel says, here's how you cope. You don't need a psychiatrist, you need the great psychiatrist. You need a relationship with God and you remain faithful to him through any situation when you're under attack and you'll be given extra dimensions of divine strength. Now, this chapter in the book of Daniel is not a prophecy like the other portions of the book. Daniel is a key prophetic book of the Bible as we're learning, as we're journeying through it. But this particular section is a key prelude to four major prophetic visions which Daniel will receive from God after these events. There can be little doubt in anybody's mind that Satan wanted to destroy Daniel and prevent him from getting any more revelation from God. He wanted to destroy Daniel and prevent him from revealing critical data that would be world-impacting. And yet he couldn't do it. This actually ends up proving that Daniel was a faithful man of God who was protected by God. I'm convinced that a key to great honor is faithfulness and great warfare. You purpose to be a faithful man or woman of God in any context, whether it be your marriage, your work, whether it be a relationship, whether it be as a father or as a mother, whether it be as a child, as an employer or an employee, and you purpose to be faithful, you'll be tested in that arena. But if you remain faithful through that test, and you stay true to the word of God, you will discover that you will make a great statement for the Lord and eventually you'll be highly honored. That's the story of Daniel. When you look down through this chapter, there's a theme that surfaces and that is God and his sovereignty permitted his faithful servant to be discredited and attacked 
God lets Daniel go through this so that ultimately he can get rid of the evil enemies and then bring his faithful man to an even greater level of honor and even use him to reveal more truth. God lets Daniel go through all of that to produce that, to show him he was able and he could deliver him. There are times when God will permit phony evil people to do great damage to us. I'm convinced the end result of the hidden purpose behind that is to eventually remove them and bless us. God will make a powerful statement for himself by allowing us at times to go into a lion's den and then bring us out of the lion's den. Because that's what makes a great statement for the glory of God. Now there are ten main parts I want you to see from the narrative before us. Part number one Darius, or Darius, is somewhat older when he becomes a political leader. Verse 31, Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age 62. There are, in the Old Testament, three men named Darius. You don't want to confuse them. You have Darius, who was the king of Persia. He restored the Persian Empire after Cyrus. Cyrus will be named later in this book. Then you have Darius the Mede. That's the one we're looking at here, who was appointed by Cyrus to rule. That's this guy. And then you have Darius II, who ruled during the days of Nehemiah. This is number two, this Darius who was appointed by Cyrus. And based on Daniel 9.2 and 6.28, we can assume that when Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, took over that part of the world, he took it away from the Babylonians, he appointed Darius, who was king of the Medes, to be in charge of the Babylonian Empire. When that happened, he was 62 years old when that appointment was made. That tells us he wasn't a young man. He did have some wits about him. There's certainly truth to that. We'll see in just a moment. But he also had some pride about him. See, just because one is older doesn't automatically mean they're smarter. And just because one is older doesn't automatically mean they're right with God. And just because one is older doesn't automatically mean they do not do foolish things. Older people can do dumb things, and Darius is one who does it. I saw an older person one time break a marriage. I've seen older people stop serving the Lord. I've seen older people stop being faithful. They know better, but they just continue on that path of destruction. Now the second part is Darius organizes the kingdom, verses 1 to 3. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom. Now typically, when a new power takes over a kingdom, a company, or even a church, there's a reorganization that takes place. I've gone to two churches, one in Indiana, one out in Idaho. Both of them had secretaries before I got there. Both of the secretaries, when they knew they were getting a new pastor, wrote me a letter because they knew that one of the things that I typically will do is pick my own secretary. And therefore, they wanted to have a chance at the job. So they wrote me a letter because they know when we go through an organizational change, there's a reorganization of power. So they wrote letters asking if I would still like them to be my secretary. That's what Darius does here. He reorganizes the whole thing once he takes over. He broke the empire down into 120 princes or governors who were each responsible over a territory. He was a good administrator. You see that about him. He's organizing things in a right way. And over these 120, he appointed three commissioners or presidents, of whom Daniel was one of those three. Now, the primary reason for this organization was financial. Daniel was a man who could be trusted. He was, as we would say, a veteran administrator. He had served under Nebuchadnezzar's regime. He was now serving under Darius' regime. Obviously, Darius had heard reports of Daniel and some of those remarkable stories about him and how he revealed those dreams and those interpretations that he gave. And Daniel's now in his 80s. He's in his 80s. 
Daniel was not out for political gain. In fact, as verse 3 says, the king planned to put him in charge of the entire kingdom. Obviously, Darius had taken notice of the aged Daniel. Darius sensed that Daniel was different. He was a wise man. You couldn't hide that if you were Daniel. He's in his 80s, yet he still stands out, even though he's in his 80s. There's something about this man. There's an aura about him that this Darius sensed. This is a very powerful man. Listen, when you're faithful to God, God will permit others to sense that. You don't have to go around telling them. You stay faithful to God. You purpose to know the word of God. You purpose to be a person of prayer. And other people in your world will begin to sense you're different. There's something different about you. You radiate that. That's what Daniel did. And God wanted to take Daniel and put him in charge of the entire kingdom. And that's what Darius wanted to do as well. And obviously Darius had taken notice of Daniel and he put him in position of power. And God wanted him there because this 70-year period that has been predicted that the Israelis would be in Babylonian captivity was nearing its conclusion. And so God's going to put Daniel back in a high position while this event takes place, which is important in biblical prophecy. Now, the thing that got Daniel promoted, though, was his faithfulness to God. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to make a point here before we move on. You do not have to be living or working in a godly environment. You do not have to be living or working for a godly company to be godly. Daniel was surrounded by immoral idolaters. He was living in about as corrupt a world as you could live in in history. And yet, his testimony shined out to the point that Darius sensed there's something extraordinary about this man. You can be in your world that can be very corrupt and you can still shine bright as a faithful child of God and people will begin to sense there's something that is extraordinary about that man, about that woman. There's something that they have that shines out that these other people don't have. That's the way it was for Daniel. Now the third part is the other commissioners and satraps are jealous of Daniel and devise a plan to destroy him. You'll notice verse 4, the commissioners and satraps begin trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel. When you're faithful to God, when you've been given a high position of responsibility by the Lord, there will be those other agents who are with you, working along beside you, who are jealous of you and of your position. Instead of them rejoicing that you had a righteous person in one of the highest positions of political power in the Medo-Persian Empire, these guys were jealous and envious of Daniel because they didn't have the responsibility. And that's the way it is in a corrupt world. That's the way it is in a corrupt company. Those who are faithful to God often become hated. Those that work in a corrupt world often become the target of hatred from those who aren't right with God. And there are at least three main reasons why these leaders were jealous of Daniel. Number one, he had the king's favor. The king really sensed there was something extraordinary about Daniel. He's going to put him in charge of the whole kingdom. Number two, he was Jewish. They were Gentile. They didn't like that. You can bank on that. This is just like today between the Palestinian, the Arabs, and the Jews. When they saw Daniel in this high position, they're thinking, hey, he's a Jew. We don't like him in that position. And thirdly, Daniel was not corrupt and greedy like they were. See, they were trying to find something of corruption in him. The reason why they're trying to do that is because they know they had things of corruption in them, and that's typically how these political guys operate. They're corrupt. They're not honest. They're not forthright. Daniel was a man who was forthright. If Daniel were put in charge, their ability to corruptly steal money would be lost. I know of a Christian man 
who was put in position one time of controlling lumber in a plant here in Kalamazoo. And the management told him that for anybody to get lumber out of this area, the person coming to get the lumber had to have a requisition slip from a foreman. Well, one man pulled into this area and wanted to take some lumber, so the Christian man said, I want to see your form that authorizes you to do it. When the man couldn't produce it, he told him, you can't have the lumber until you come back with the form. The man became incensed. He did everything he could to get this Christian man fired. Turns out, he'd been stealing lumber to build his own house. That's the kind of thing Daniel was up against here. These guys were corrupt, so they're trying to find something corrupt about Daniel. Verse 4 tells us these diabolical agents tried to find anything they could on Daniel, but there was no corruption in him. There wasn't one area which they could have any valid charge given against him. I know of a minister who was hated, so they illegally tapped his phone, hoping they could try to find something about him. They couldn't find one thing for which they could accuse him. That's the way it was right here. So verse 5 reveals something very important. The only way they knew they could get Daniel in trouble was they had to figure out a way to bring Daniel to a showdown between God's law and man's law because they knew if it came down to that, Daniel would be a man who would obey God's word. His whole testimony, his whole life, his whole reputation was one of being faithful to the Lord. So to do this, to try to get Daniel into this position, they have to lie. Notice verse 7, all the commissioners of the kingdom have said this. That's a lie. Daniel certainly didn't say it. So they start lying, twisting reality to try to get their way. And according to verses 6 to 8, they petitioned the king to honor himself by demanding that no petition should be given for 30 days to any other god or man other than to Darius, and this should be a 30-day test period, and if anybody disobeyed this, they should be thrown into the lion's den. And then they asked the king, you sign this in the law, because the Medo-Persian laws could not be revoked. Once a king had judicially decreed something, it could not be revoked, for that was the law. And that is also a law that really is true when it comes to God. God has decreed that we're all guilty before him. He's not going to go back on that edict. God has decreed that we've all sinned. In fact, he's decreed we sinned in Adam. And he can't overlook that edict. He can't just say, let's forget about that. Let's just forget about the fact that they blew it. All we can hope is that he will issue a new edict that will unravel the old edict. And that's why there's the second Adam. And God says, I can declare you guilty in the first Adam, and I can declare you righteous in the second Adam, but I cannot overlook the fact that you're sinful. That's why every one of us needs to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so we can be declared righteous because we've been declared guilty. Now, this edict was evil, but it appealed to the ego of Darius. And verse 9 says he agreed and he signed the document, that is the injunction. He agreed to it. He did not see or sense the diabolical nature of the edict. He did not know that this was designed to get rid of Daniel, but anyway, he was caught and he signed it into law. This in capsule form is something you'll see later in the book of Daniel is what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to demand that people worship him. He'll demand it in the temple of Jerusalem that will be rebuilt. And I believe the horizon of that is right now, the rebuilding of that temple. I think the rapture of the church will occur. And I think after the rapture of the church, the temple's going to be reconstructed. And in a similar fashion, 
Only this will not be something that this person doesn't know. This will be diabolical. He'll demand that he be worshipped and he only be worshipped. And if you refuse to worship him and refuse to take his mark, you will be executed. Well, that brings us to the fourth part. Daniel disobeyed the Medo-Persian law to obey God's law about prayer. Notice verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber. He had windows open toward Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks to God now, Daniel was not a type of guy who would violate civil authority. He was a very submissive man. He was obedient to civil authority. He did not go on political crusades against governing power. But when civil authority compromised the word of God or asked him to do something contrary to the word of God, Daniel dug his heels in and said, I won't do it. Now, Daniel was a man of God's word. We know that from these verses. First of all, according to Daniel 9.2, we know he had a copy of the book of Jeremiah. We also know that Daniel viewed Jeremiah as a prophet of God. We learn that from Daniel 9.2. One of the things that Jeremiah taught was that Jewish people who were in exile needed to pray. And they were to pray that God would remove them from exile and restore them to the land. We also know that Daniel knew of David's emphasis of praying three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And also, Daniel knew one more thing, the importance of praying to God from the temple in Jerusalem. And he also knew that if you weren't in Jerusalem and you couldn't pray from the temple, according to 2 Chronicles 6.21, you were to pray toward the temple when not in Jerusalem. Now, since Daniel was not in Jerusalem, he would open his window and he would kneel and make his supplications known to the Lord. He would kneel and pray while facing the temple. That is brought out in verse 10. I want you to notice two things about his prayer. First of all, it says there in verse 10, he gave thanks before his God. He's in exile. The Jews at this point have not been freed. He's surrounded by corrupt people, corrupt political leaders, and he's giving thanks to God. The second thing I want you to know is he knelt down. And that is really stressed in the Hebrew Kneeling on his knees. It's a repetition to make a point that he's down on his knees. I want to talk about that just for a moment. I believe we can pray anytime, any way. We're to be praying people at all times of the day. You can pray while you're driving a car down the road. Don't close your eyes, but you can still pray to the Lord. You can pray while going for a walk. You can pray when you sit down. We have prayer meetings here, a lot of prayer meetings here, and most of the time we sit in a comfortable chair when we're going to pray. But I do believe there's real power to be gained when we kneel down and pray. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Lord, in the night of his betrayal, when he was in the garden, knelt down and prayed. I don't think it's a coincidence that Stephen, who is the first martyr in Acts 7, knelt down and prayed. I don't think it's a coincidence that when Peter was taking the gospel to the Jewish world, ultimately he was revealed to him that he was to take it to the Gentile world. He raised a dead girl in Acts 9. He knelt down and prayed. I don't think it's a coincidence we read when Paul and Miletus gathered the Ephesian elders together and he was about to leave them that they knelt down and prayed. And I also don't think that it's a coincidence that when James tells us that we are to pray like Elijah prayed, he was a righteous man, he prayed that it might not rain, and then he prayed again that it would rain, he was one man who moved God, and then we go and read that episode in Kings, we discover that Elijah knelt down and prayed. 
I don't believe those are coincidences. It seems to me, ladies and gentlemen, that God is saying, if you really want to be tapping into my power, you kneel down at times and pray. Now, I'm not telling you to do this so that everybody can see it. Enter into your closets and kneel down before the Lord and pray. There's something very personal and very powerful about that, and that's what Daniel did. Now, Daniel's habit was not to shut his window, so he did this right out in front of people. This is integrity. Daniel doesn't hide anything. He doesn't change anything. This is the way he typically acted. This is the way he typically operated. He's up front with his faith. He's out front with his faith. He's not trying to hide things under a bushel basket. He's out in the open. People knew where he stood. People knew what he believed. Daniel was no phony. And by the way, may I suggest, ladies and gentlemen, Daniel did not organize some massive protest prayer meeting against government. Daniel did not say, let's get together all of our... Jewish friends in the arena of religion because I'm in a high position and let's form a political revolt group because this is such a bizarre edict. He just quietly, personally, privately kneels down and he prays. It is said one time a group of Spurgeon's enemies went to him and said that if he didn't do what they wanted him to do, that they would publish everything they knew about Spurgeon and ruin his reputation. Spurgeon is said to have looked him in the eyes as Spurgeon would, and he said, write all you know about me across the heavens. I have nothing to hide. There are two important ways we learn here where we can really, in our own personal lives, get to the top. One is through faithful godliness, and the other is through prayer. Obey the word of God and be a person of prayer and watch what happens in your world. Make that your ambition. I'm going to be faithful to God no matter what, and I'm going to be a prayer warrior no matter what. And watch what happens in your life. One difference between great people of God and not so great people of God is that when great people of God are backed into a corner, the great man or woman of God will not buckle to the pressure and do the wrong. Great men and women of God do not cave in no matter what everybody else is doing. And by the way, why didn't God, when these men looked in on Daniel to see whether or not he's praying, why didn't God make him invisible? God certainly could have done that. They could have looked in that room and said, well... I don't see anything wrong here. God could have kept those men from seeing Daniel. I'll tell you why God didn't blind their eyes or make Daniel invisible. He wanted him in the lion's den. And the reason why he wants him in the lion's den is because he's going to show himself strong. These evil leaders came and found Daniel praying. This is a legitimate disobedience to governmental authority and law. Daniel's willing to disobey the law. He's willing to take the consequences for his disobedience. Which brings us to the fifth part. The political leaders go to Darius to have Daniel killed, verses 12 to 17. In verse 12, Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did not you sign an injunction? These leaders asked the king a stupid question, whether or not he signed the injunction, which of course he knew he did. Then in verse 13, they told him that Daniel, who was in exile from Judah, still prays three times a day to Darius. What a charge! He still prays to God three times a day. Boy, there's a real valid charge to execute someone. Richard Baxter, a Puritan preacher, once said, God's people should be more concerned that they deserve the persecution 
rather than they should be delivered from it. Because if they deserve it, that means they are faithful to God. See, sometimes we are persecuted because we do stupid things, but when we are being persecuted because we're standing for God, that certainly is something that has high importance in the mind of God. Darius was deeply distressed. He set his mind on delivering Daniel even until sunset, but the men kept persisting that Daniel had violated the law and needed to be thrown into the lion's den. So the king cast Daniel into the lion's den with the belief that Daniel's God would deliver him. Now a lion's den, according to Kyle, who found one in Morocco, consisted of a large square cavern under the earth, having a partition of wall, a middle wall, whereby you could let the lion into one side, clean out that side of the cage, and then let the lion back in. According to Kyle and Dalich, you would throw food in, entice the lion to go in one chamber, then shut the other chamber off. The cavern had an opening above where you could look down in there, but then it also because it was made somewhat of like a concrete or stone, it also had a wall that was a few yards high that surrounded that as well so that lion couldn't get out. That's what Daniel was thrown into. Which brings us about the sixth part. Darius worries about Daniel all night long, verses 18 to 20. The king couldn't sleep. He did not sleep. He did not eat. He did not want to be entertained. And in the wee hours of the morning, even before he could see in the den, he cries out to Daniel and asks him, Did God deliver you? Daniel wasn't worried, but Darius was. One time a Sunday school teacher asked her class if the kids thought Daniel was scared in that den of lions. One of the young girls said, no, he wasn't scared in the den of lions because the lion of the tribe of Judah was in that den with him. But that's the question. Is your God able? And in order to prove that God was able, Daniel needed to be in this lion's den. Which brings us to the seventh part. Daniel's delivered from the den of lions. Verses 21 to 23, as we read it this morning. Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. When the king yells into Daniel, most people would cry, get me out of here. I've been in this den long enough, but not Daniel. Daniel was as calm as he could be. Because God had sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths. Now God could have shut the lion's mouth without sending an angel. He could have just said, these lions are going to sleep, going to sleep all night, and Daniel will get out of there in the morning. But the angel kept Daniel company all through the night. There's a big debate on whether or not this was the angel of the Lord, an actual theophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I'm not so sure it is, but certainly God had authorized this. One might ask, why did God let Daniel go into the lion's den? Well, this meant Daniel could spend a quiet night with the physical presence of God. And this also meant... God could get Daniel out of this dilemma and raise him up to an even higher level. Listen, here's an important principle to learn. One of the reasons why God lets bad things happen to his people is so that he may be glorified by the response of his people in the bad thing. Daniel comes out of this lion's den without a scratch. Paul picks up on this in his own personal life when he was about to be executed by Nero in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, The Lord delivered me from the lion's mouth many, many times. In other words, I saw God delivered me. I ran across an interesting statement, and it says this, A man or woman of God doing the will of God is immortal until their work on earth is done. I want you to remember that the next time you have to get on an airplane. Or remember that the next time you have to walk down some scary street. 
Or remember that the next time you're about to go in for a surgery and you don't know for sure if you're going to come out of it. Just remember that point, that you are immortal until your work on earth is done. And if you stay faithful to the Lord, you'll not go into eternity until you've completely fulfilled the will of God. And Daniel still had some work to do. The eighth part is Darius execute all those evil planners and their families. Verse 24 says, The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. When people do something negative against a faithful servant of God, there comes a time they're going to pay. You may be certain of that. God is not an idle spectator when it comes to wronging faithful people. If you're a faithful child of God, you can be certain there'll come a time when people who have hurt you are going to pay a price. Because God will track them down. Only the ringleaders were destroyed. Those who had initially accused Daniel, not only were they destroyed, but also their wives and their children. Now punishing the children and the wives for the sins of a father was something forbidden in the word of God. But you have to remember, this is a Gentile world that's not operating by the principles of God's word. And in the political world, it was easier, as one writer said, to count corpses than to keep an eye on family traitors. God's justice had moved. Daniel was delivered and his enemies were eliminated. The ninth part is Darius makes a decree about God to all people in the kingdom. The decree was that the God of Daniel was to be reverenced and feared. Now look at this. This lion's den context was necessary for Darius to come to this conclusion. He is the living God. He is the eternal God. He is the ruling God. He is the rescuing God. He is the all-powerful God. Think of what he's saying here. He's the living God, the eternal God, the ruling God, the rescuing God. He's the all-powerful God. This is a decree that's being made by a Gentile heathen king. And this king recognizes truth about God that most of the time God's own people forget. Sometimes when God's people get in trouble or they face something, they will run to anybody but God. Sometimes they'll run to people that can't possibly give them any hope or any help. They can give them a pill, but they can't give them real answers. But God's people need to learn what Darius is admitting here. You are in a relationship with the living, eternal, ruling, rescuing, all-powerful God. You can run to Him. The next time you have a crisis, get down on your knees privately and go to the Lord. And finally, Daniel enjoyed success in his final years of life with Darius and Cyrus. Look at how it ends, verse 28. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Both men honored Daniel. Now to get Daniel to this position, there needed to be that lion's den. God was making a statement about himself and his faithful man. There's a famous writer in church history. His name is John Bunyan. He's probably most famous for what he wrote, Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote that while he was in prison. All John Bunyan had to do to get out of jail was to sign a letter that said he would not preach in public. That letter was brought to him I don't know how many times. 
That letter said, John, sign this and we'll let you out of jail. You will not preach in public. The option was there for 12 and a half years, every single day. All he had to do was sign that, that I will not preach in public, and he could walk out of jail. During those years, he had a wife and little children, one of whom, Mary, was blind. Bunyan loved his family. And he wrote, sometimes when I would think of my struggling wife and my children, especially little Mary, I would just start to cry. But Bunyan stayed faithful to the Lord. He knew he was serving a powerful God. And this was one of those issues that wasn't gray. This was an issue he needed to dig his heels in and take a stand. And as that prison term continued, he wrote a book that would be used mightily by God in the world, Pilgrim's Progress. That book would reach the world. John Bunyan was just like Daniel. God may ask you to walk through some dangerous places and situations in life, but if he asks you to do it, he'll walk right there with you. And if you're faithful to the Lord, you'll face your share of lions. If you're faithful to God, you'll sometimes get sick. If you're faithful to God, you'll face death. It could be the death of someone you love. It could be even face your own death. If you're faithful to the Lord, you may experience a business reversal. If you're faithful to God, you may have someone that will slander you. You may find yourself in serious domestic trouble if you stand for what's right before God, or you may discover you're in some major relationship problems. But when you find yourself in those lion's den situations, you purpose to do one thing. You purpose to remain faithful to your God. Because when all is said and done, those who honor God are those God will honor. But it all begins with a willingness to separate yourself from the evil stuff like Daniel did. May we pray. There is an edict that has been issued against every single one of us. We're all sinful. We're all guilty. We've all broken the law of God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. God's not going to overlook that on the day you face him. He's not going to say, I'll just forget about your sin problem. Let's just see how much good you did and see if it measured up. He'll never do that. But I've got wonderful news for you. There's another edict that can be issued for you on your behalf. It's called justification. And if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God will issue a new edict. He'll declare you to be righteous from all your sin. He'll give you the righteousness of his son, and he'll declare you to be his child forever. Right now in this moment, if you want to get on that righteous course, you pray something like this right where you sit. God, I'm a sinner. I admit it. I thank you that Jesus died for me, and right now I place all of my faith in him to save me. For those who know the Lord, are you in the lion's den now? You stay faithful. Dig your heels in. Keep yourself from evil stuff. Get away from it. Remain faithful to him, and he will honor you. Father, thank you so much for the precious word and life of Daniel. You are able. You have shown yourself to be able to, I'm sure, all of us in many times and many ways. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to be a group of people who reflect your glory because we are able to testify of what we've seen you do. I pray for those that are right now 
in difficult times. They're going through tough trials. I pray that you would show yourself strong for them, and as they honor you, honor them. In Jesus' name, amen.